Welcome back to the Passion Project Podcast. My name is Matt Gosnell, and this week my guest is Dave Burse, author of How to Get to Great Ideas. Dave talks about creativity, passion, and his right thinking system. I'm also joined this week by my colleague, Nicole Bond, a seventh grade English teacher. I know you're going to enjoy this episode, so here's Dave Burse. So for, for you guys, you're... So are you, are you both looking at, at creativity at the moment um, and, and how it fits into the education yes, system? Yes, pretty much. Um, my, my class is a, it's a course that's been around for uh, three years, so it's pretty new, and it's called The Passion Project. And the idea is that we give uh, students, based on what students like, we give them the ability to kind of pursue projects that are based on their likes. It's uh, kind of like the, the idea of like 20% time at, at Google or or 3M. So that's kind of where this is yeah. all, all coming from. But when I was in the classroom, I really, I, I had like a, a mini maker space and stuff and really liked having the kids just kind of go out and, and make things and create things. So they had that opportunity to kind of think for themselves as opposed to just having information dumped into them. So what kind of stuff is it that they tend to do sort of in, in the past couple of years when you've been doing it? What, what are the projects that they tend to gravitate uh, for? For the uh, for the makerspace stuff, it, it started out as a as a series of sort of design challenges. So I'd give them a a tray with popsicle sticks and five rubber bands and a lid, and I'd have and I'd tell them that they needed to create a catapult, and then we'd see you know what catapult would shoot farther. If uh, we were reading a book or something like last year, we read uh, the Cat in the Hat, so we set up a design challenge of how would they capture thing one and thing two using the stuff that we had kind. Of laying around the classroom. <laughs> so it was, you know, like you do with, you know, a bunch of cardboard tubes, some hot glue and a box and having them, having them kind of pursue that. And then it moved into more letting them kind of choose what they wanted to do. So they, they pursued some of their interests. Some of them really liked playing with Legos and connects and they would make plans and projects based around things that they built. Uh, Nicole's been doing a lot with, with boys and choice as well so yes in my classroom i'm kind of focusing well right now i'm focusing on what we can do to improve society so i'm really looking at larger picture kind of questions exposing them to uh articles that have to do with social bias and different inequalities and having them look at problems like the refugee crisis so i'm trying to really pull in some real world problems and have them more of a on paper kind of brainstorm versus the makerspace kind of brainstorm yeah now that that's great the, the 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 way that you're both doing things there is the way that i believe that we should be looking at how creativity fits into education the way that sadly when i've been dealing with schools over the last few years and talking about creativity it's been schools have been saying oh you know we've we've got a drama lab we've got um, a music department we've got an art uh, we've got an art department you know that's our investment in creativity it's uh, no no, that's not really the way it works. You know, th those things, they're all about creative doing. That's kind of trying to get people onto that 10,000 hours journey to become great at doing something. Mastery in some kind of artistic area. That's not equal to creativity. Or creativity, I, I love that, that what, what you are describing, Nicole, is, is not, it's not just creativity. It's generally it's thinking skills. And it's about applied thinking and creativity is just one facet of applied thinking that I, I think we should be teaching kids. So when we uh, are kind of thinking about different, 
different, you know, avenues to go down while, while talking to you. Um, or when, when it comes to, you know, like the in creativity in schools, how, how should, what do you think we need to do to sort of get teachers thinking the right way? Like, do, do you think that it should be, you know, training, like just as you go for, for training in your subject area, should there be training for creativity in, in teacher education? Um, I think it's the way that we teach. I and I don't know, but you you guys as experts uh, in this field, uh, maybe it's it's really, or, or maybe we're all just amateurs in everything we do, <laughs> which is actually quite a beautiful thing because the word am- amateur it, it comes from love of something. You know, it's, it's got amour within it. Amateur, it, it means it, it, it's um, somebody who does something that they love, and um, I, I think that within education, at the moment we're battering out curiosity. You know, we're ramming facts into the heads of kids that the kids aren't interested in rather than drawing the kids out towards the subjects to be able to explore and be curious about them. So instead of necessarily saying that this is the way that we need to um, add up this, we need to create this experiment, is instead it's like, how would we do this? Based on this information, how do you think we could do this? Let's explore. Let's try some ways of doing it. Um, so instead focus on how to learn rather than what to learn. So I think that's kind of where we need to be because it, it seems at the moment as education was designed for, let's be honest, education has got a, a, an economic purpose. And the reason that our governments fund education is because we are supposed to be churning out work units ready for the workplace but what we're doing at the moment is the children we are giving them skills that are actually more suited to victorian times than to the modern day and i think it's more important than ever to teach kids to be able to have soft skills being able to adapt being able to empathize um being able to imagine than it is to be drilling kids drilling the information into the heads of the kids but that that's just my point of view i'd be really interested to hear what your point of view is as, as people who are doing this day to day i i i agree and when you when you talked about those those soft soft skills and things like that we've been in my my class you know we we focus a lot on trying to reach out to people to get them to to, to offer you know mentorship or help i mean it's exactly what we what we did with you i mean so that's but it's that also so many of them just don't know how to how to talk to people, how to deal with people or, you know, how to deal with any sort of rejection or failure in that way as well. So it's that, that sort of, you know, resilience mm-hmm. that that we you know are trying to foster as well. And I almost feel like there's a little bit of a almost a generation gap where there's a group of teachers who were never taught how to teach those soft skills because of the assumption that you had those soft skills or the soft skills were just inherent. So we're never even taught how to teach Mm -hmm. them to students. So there's almost a gap that I feel like we have to fill in somewhere. Oh, yeah. I mean, you've hit the nail on the head with this thing that the people believe that certain skills are inherent. And this is the thing I come up against again and again with people thinking that creative skills are, are inherent. Some people have them and some people don't. 
just like some people empathize and other people don't. But I don't believe that this is stuff that's wired in. I believe that it's as much nurture as it is nature and that we can teach these things. We can develop these skills. I believe that everyone has got the ability to come up with ideas. I, I believe that everyone has the ability to empathize. You know, I, I, I don't... I think that there is a sort of old school mentality, you're right, about thinking that you know, certain skills are inherent and it's not necessarily the, um, the role of education. But the role of education is surely to prepare young people to be proper functioning adults. I, I agree. So going, going with that train of thought that you know, creativity is something that could be taught, then is it also something that can be rated or graded? Because that's where... That's what, you know, we run up against a lot, you know, especially in, in my, in what I'm doing here is, you know, there isn't necessarily a specific, you know, skill or something that's, you know, expressly being developed. So then, you know, attaching a, attaching a mark to it, attaching a grade to it doesn't necessarily fit into the grand scheme. But do you have, do you have any way of sort of judging that, that or evaluating something for creativity oh it's a very very oh. difficult thing to do and a fantastic question uh um you know there, there's certainly there's ways when i've been talking to companies about this and sort of seeing if people if they're wanting to encourage creative thinking in their staff how they go about doing that and what i say to them it's it's not to it's, it, I, first of all i tell them that recognition beats reward so in dan pink's book drive he had this fantastic study that he talks about it's uh it's subtitled to the book is the surprising truth yeah. of what motivates us and he's got this thing that he it's, it's, it's a wonderful book isn't it um and he's got this thing that he talks about with uh with reward if you reward people for doing a job they go from a to b as quickly as possible so that means that if you want somebody to hammer out more widgets in an hour, give them a reward for doing that and they will do it. You will improve what they're doing. But as soon as you have a task that involves even rudimentary mental skills, rudimentary mental effort, reward works against you. Because if you're wanting people to use their brain, then going from A to B as quickly as possible isn't the way to do it. You want them to explore. You want them to try out new options. You want them to think beyond the obvious. And that's more of a squiggly line <laughs> rather than a straight line. And the way that you encourage people to do the squiggly line is to recognize uh, effort rather than reward uh, what people do. So recognition, it's the reason why in, in the artistic industries and the creative industries, there are so many awards shows. So we've got, uh, we've got the Oscars, we've got the Tonys, uh, we've got the Grammys, um, you know, we've, we've got art awards as well. We've got uh, writing awards and, and all these things they, they encourage excellence because these people get recognition in their field. It encourages excellence um, within the workplace. When I'm talking to people um, that are looking at management of their staff to be able to get better ideas out of their staff, I tell them to recognize people for their effort, not necessarily for success. Because if you only recognize success uh, w with an idea, then what you're saying to everyone else is, oh, man, they, they, they're only going to be interested if this works. 
So I'm not willing to take the risk if it doesn't. And the thing is, when we're getting people to come up with ideas, there's no guarantee that ideas will work. And it's better to be experimental and to try stuff out. And to do that, it means that you should be recognizing people for the effort that they, they take rather than for the success, which means that if we're actually trying to measure this and, and put some kind of mark on it, then that can actually work against what we're huh. trying to do. Because if you start putting marks on it, it says to some people, ah, these people are creative and I'm not. And I think that that's a really destructive message yeah. to leave people with. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> so in, in sort of, you know, evaluating, you know, different thinking processes in your, in your book, uh, you set forth, you know, the, the right, the right thinking um, framework. Could you maybe explain yeah. right thinking? A little bit and then maybe how does it differ from other uh, design thinking framework yeah yeah well I mean I'll start by saying how it differs from design thinking is that design thinking uses broadly the same kind of system right thinking is not something that it's, it's a name that I've given a process that different we're good at this thinking already use so I would say that within the, the larger Venn diagram, I think right thinking works for all kinds of solutions. Any, anything that's going from problem to solution, right thinking works for everything. There is a, there's a smaller circle within that which design thinking works in, uh, fits into. So design thinking is more about a cycle. There's lots of cycles in there yes. that are all about, does this work? Then let's go back there. Let's try it again. Let's iterate, go around again. Um, right thinking can have cycles within it and and in many cases really should but it, it's it's just a way of being able to clarify in people's heads the steps that they need to go through to be able to solve a problem so with uh, the letters r-i-g-h-t standing for research insight generate ideas hone ideas test ideas so it's Quite simple, with all of these things, I, I tell people they should be looking for the non-obvious. Because when we measure creativity, as we said to the class earlier in the week, that if there's, if there's two axes that we've got, then one, one of those axes, uh, axes, I, I can never do the plural of axis. Uh, one, of, one, one axis is, um, is non-obviousness, and the other axis is value. So if we want people to get to non-obvious ideas at the end, we actually need to have non-obvious as a focus throughout. So when we're researching, we're looking for the non-obvious stuff because we're looking for the interesting information that other people don't have. So with that research, we're getting the stuff that's interesting that we think other people haven't spotted especially. Then the next stage is to take that information, which to be honest is really raw data, and to try and extract some kind of meaning that we can work with from that. And what I tell people, insight, I've been asking people who work with the word insight. So people who are communication strategists or, or, or business strategists, they all use this word insight. And I've been asking for the last couple of years, what is insight? <laughs> because I genuinely wanted to know. And very few of them could tell me. Really, it was, it was embarrassing. So I, I had a, done a bit of research and a lot of thinking thinking about this and for my system what I've got it down to is that an insight is the interesting reason behind an interesting observation 
So the most important things, when we've done our research, we get an interesting observation. Then we want to get the reason behind it. So, for example, an example I often use when I'm speaking to explain this to people is if there was a statistic. Now, this is a made up statistic. OK, <laughs> if there was a statistic that said that um, every Friday morning. Millennials are 37 percent more likely to wear odd socks. So that's that's a statistic. Now, it's completely made up. It's not true. <laughs> but that, that in itself seems quite interesting. It seems like a fact you might tell someone down the pub. But it's not hugely useful until we try and work out what's the interesting reason behind the interesting observation. And the interesting reason behind that made-up observation could be that they're more likely to wear odd socks on a, on a Friday morning because these days they're going out drinking more on a Thursday night. <laughs> which means they're more likely to be hung over on a Friday morning and they're just putting on whatever's at their feet when they get out of bed. <laughs> so that then becomes something we can work with because if we know that they're going out drinking on a Thursday night, it means that if we're wanting to come up with ideas that, that can be useful, maybe we can help them with their drinking. Maybe we can find interesting places for them to go and to discover. Uh, maybe we can give them new drinks um, that they might want to try. Maybe we can create a reminder to say, look, it's probably time to stop drinking and go home. Uh, maybe we can create a special taxi service for them so that, so that we can make sure they get home on time at night that gives them water to drink on the way back to, to, so they don't get dehydrated. Maybe we can have something special to help them on a Friday morning to get rid of their hangover. And at that point, we've got useful ideas that automatically come out of that insight. But those useful ideas wouldn't come out of the observation. So that's kind of what I try to get at with people is, is with brainstorms, people generally go straight for the G of right thinking. They go immediately to the generate ideas and they've not done the research and they've not done the insight, which means they don't have a good foundation to come up with ideas. So the generating bit, generating ideas, um, it's not to do with brainstorms because brainstorms are, are terrible, terrible things that have been proven to be useless. <laughs> and it's so many, uh, so many studies show this. Um, I, I believe it's over 100 academic studies in the 76 years that brainstorming has been around, the majority of which sit, totally debunk it, say that it's complete nonsense, leads to fewer ideas, worse ideas than if you get the same group of people to work by themselves. Yeah, which Mike totally called me on after talking to you. So that was so. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> Nicole, I can, I, can, so, I can send you the information on this. <laughs> they don't need any more for their fire. But... <laughs> so then after this generating ideas bit, another thing, that usually, it usually stops there. So, you know, in organizations, you do the brainstorm. Somebody writes up on a flip chart, three pages of a flip chart, <laughs> the ideas that have been come up with in this and then they rip it off the flip chart and they say well get the intern to type these up <laughs> and then the intern types it up uh, and then on, on the, in the afternoon they get a word document through and they look at it and go nope nothing makes any sense <laughs> what were we thinking um and one of the reasons for that is is they don't judge the best ideas and they don't develop the ideas so as part of the generating ideas the tail end of that is judgment and people don't know how to judge and it's one of these things I, I work with companies on uh, on how to do this. And, and I, one of the things I do is I explain the neuroscience of judgment. So people think that we've only got one brain. 
but actually our whole body is a brain. You know, we, we are a distributed nervous system. And the only reason we've got a brain is if you look evolutionary at it, um, is that all the nerves couldn't fit in the spinal cord as we got more complex. So they balled up at one end and basically created a brain. And the more function we got, the bigger that ball became. And that, that's, that's our brain. But our, our second biggest cluster of neurons in our body is our gut. And it's got, the, it's got more neurons than an entire hamster has in our gut. And 90% of those neurons only fire in an upward direction, which means that they send information to the brain. So they control the brain rather than the brain controlling the gut. So it's quite interesting that when we actually feel nervous, we genuinely do feel it in our guts. That's where the thinking is happening. And we feel it because down there, um, these neurons are, are connected to things that are giving out hormones and chemicals to go into our systems that make us feel nervous. Now, I don't know about your guts, but my guts doesn't have any eyes. <laughs> so when, when we feel these things, we can't just trust our guts because these things are dumb. I mean, they're, they're, they're as, as smart as a hamster, maybe, <laughs> but they, 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 they can't actually see or feel or touch or smell. So we have to, if we feel something, we don't react to our guts, we interpret our gut. And this is what I work with companies. And they, then they begin to realize, oh, yeah, I was feeling uncomfortable. So I said no. And it's like, yeah, you don't do that. Hmm. If you feel uncomfortable, it's your gut actually saying, there's something here that I don't know. And that might mean it's the right thing. Because if I'm asking for something that's innovative, if I'm asking for something that's new, it will be unfamiliar. It will raise questions. It will make you go, what if this doesn't work? It will make you go, I don't know how to do this. I'm going to have to learn more information. It will make you go, how am I going to sell this to my superiors? <laughs> of course, and all these things will make you feel nervous. But if you're looking for something that's truly innovative, something that's going to break new ground, it is going to make you feel these things. Because it, there's so, many, so much alien stuff included in, in that idea, so many unanswered questions. So when I do these workshops with people in business, there's always this sort of realization that, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you know, we just react to our gut. And, and there's a lot of arrogance that goes with it. But people say, yeah, but gut's from experience. It's more I do this, I feel it in my gut. Because it's like, <laughs> no, it's, it's actually what happens is the more that you have done your job, the more defined you feel that job is. <laughs> and the, and the, the more that you resist difference. That's what it's about. It's not that you have educated your gut to be clever. It's the fact that you have limited it to make it more stupid. <laughs> and that's why you feel that way. So, so I teach people judgment at the end of the idea generation process. And then, you know, once if we get an idea out of brainstorms that they're actually all right, it's not finished. It's only the beginning of an idea. We then need to hone it. So we need to work out what, what it is. What was the thing we were trying to solve? How do we take this idea and make it solve that better? So you need to work on it and develop it and hone it. So what you get out of a brainstorm session at very, very best is something that's just the raw materials of an idea, the beginning of an idea. So you need to spend time honing it. And then that kind of extends into testing it. And I show people how to prototype things in a very basic way. So with um, digital projects, I'll very often teach them how to create a prototype just using PowerPoint. 
so that you can click on this and it will take you someplace else. And, and then it gives you options to take you other places. And in many ways, it's almost like a, a choose your own adventure game from the 1980s. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, that you're doing within PowerPoint. But it's a great way of being able to understand the decision points, let people go through the decision points and see what decisions they make. And when they make decisions that are unexpected, ask them why. And that's what your prototype's about, is actually getting to understand people better so that you can then refine what you're doing to make it stronger. Oh, it, um, so, so that's really the, 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 the right thinking uh, methodology that, uh, that I teach people. And we've, we've done it in all sorts of industries. Um, and I've not yet found an industry where it doesn't work. <laughs> so how, where you, you talked about being in, in schools a little bit, bit earlier. Like when you go into a school, what are, what are some of the things that you're, that you're looking for or that, you know, or why, or why would a school bring you in, I guess would be the, would be the first question. And then the, what you look for once you're there type thing. Yeah, well, I mean, when I, I go into, it's really probably more uh, universities and colleges that I, I go into. Um, I, I would love to go into schools more, actually. Um, one of the problems is, is I've got is my time, I guess, is going into schools. Um, but the, the one thing that I'm always looking uh, for with, uh, with, with kids and with students is passion. I, I'm looking for people who are interesting and passionate. When, when I was working in advertising uh, and I was running creative departments, people would come in to show me their portfolio. And, you know, over the years, I've seen hundreds upon hundreds of advertising portfolios. And you'd flick through, and if the work was good enough, it'd be like, yeah, great. At that point, that's when most creatives directors would say, you've got a job or you've not got a job. I kind of, to me, I thought, yeah, that's great. It shows you know how to do advertising but i want more than that i was interested in people who were who had a passion uh, people who knew how to complete projects because being tenacious enough to finish a project is a very very rare skill so i would hire people who had interesting side projects like um, a graffiti artist was one of the best hires i ever <laughs> made um uh cake decorators people had set up their own etsy shops uh, people who had set up um, uh, T-shirt companies. And these people, they interested me because I knew if they had a passion and they knew how to complete things, to see things through to that finishing stage, and they understand that that last 10% is, is more than 50% of your effort goes into that last 10%, making something great. If I know they've got that within them, that would make my life easier. And I would then be able to bring their passion into their job to make them better at it. So when I go into schools and colleges and universities, it's the kids who have that fire in their bellies are the ones that I get really excited about. Um, and, and there was a, a kid that I met in France. I was doing a talk in the south of France. Um, no, it's actually it Mallorca <laughs> in Spain um, a couple of weeks ago. And this kid had so much passion was telling me about the things he was doing. I, I nearly cried. I was just so, I, I just love it so much when I, when I see passion in people and that, that to me is, is what I look for in kids and, and students and people in the workplace as well. It's uh, I just love the fire. So how, 
how do we as educators and how do we how do we foster that passion? How do we how do we ignite that fire? Right. There was one of the kids a couple of days ago. You remember he got up and he asked me, have you played Fortnite? Yes. <laughs> Robert. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Robert the Believer. Yeah. <laughs> um, I. I love that. You know, he, he is he's addicted to something, but he's got he's got a passion. He's got an interest there. He's got something that's driving him. And very often in school, it's these things that, you know, sort of naturally as educators will be like going, no, I want you to concentrate on this. That's that's getting in the road of what I'm wanting to teach you. But there's a lot of that stuff. I think it's possible to get them at that point of passion. And to draw them in using that point of passion. And I think there's a lot of teachers who have succeeded with this, with um, uh, Minecraft. Because, you know, there's been a lot of kids addicted to Minecraft. And there's been teachers who have been using this to teach maths, to teach programming, uh, to teach design, to teach art. You know, there's, they've actually managed to use it to, to take this that's the language and the passion that the kids have and use that to teach people. And, and I think it's a difficult skill and it requires more, requires more time because it, it means that it's finding everyone's individual passion. But I, I think that particularly for the kids that are hard to engage, I think that's probably where we need to start. All right. Hi. Well, thank you. I, that's, I, I have, uh, just one kind of final question here, and then we'll let you go. Thank you again for for uh, you know taking the time to to talk to us. So, any any time, Mark. I, I'm I'm so excited I, this, that, uh, that that we've managed to have this experience together right, this week. I I'm just I, I'm I'm overjoyed by the whole thing. So right now, I your your book's going to be coming out next week and everything. Right now, I'm really yeah. excited about like what is your? Do you have another? Do you have another project? you know, kind of cooking right now? Are you moving into some, some sort of, you know, different area? What are you doing? I have always got projects on the go. Um, and my project that I'm working on, I've, I've been up since five o'clock this morning trying to finish off a script for a documentary. So I, I had to get this script um, over to the, the company that are funding the documentary for nine o'clock this morning. <laughs> so I had to get up at five to try and finish off the script. So um, my project at the moment, I, I'm in pre-production at the moment on a documentary, which is taking the last section of the book, which is looking at how businesses can have better ideas. And this company is, they're, they're funding this documentary and paying me to do it. It's amazing mm -hmm. because I'm using them as a case study example of how to do things well. So it really pays off for them. And they genuinely are, out of all the companies that I work with at the moment, they've absolutely nailed how to get great ideas out of their employees, how to actually they start by actually caring about their employees. And the effect that that has and how that trickles down through the company is just unbelievable. So that the, the employees themselves, um, you know, sometimes we all go through a hard time and, and maybe, maybe there's a, a leak in the roof and we don't have the money to get it fixed. 
well, you know, the, the, the company will give you a no questions asked loan of uh, $2,000. Oh. No questions asked. It will be in your account by the end of the day. And you will then just pay it off out of your salary over the next few months. It is just incredible, these, these kind of things to help you out. Um, they've got a handyman so that if, again, if something happens to your house and you have to be at work to do stuff, your handyman will go and sort it. <laughs> It's these things that you just go, wow, I have never, ever heard of a company that does stuff like that. And, and, and what it's ended up doing is they got an award this year for being the best company in the world at what they do. And that is extraordinary. And it goes to show that all the effort that they put in to their business is really, really paying off. So I'm delighted to be able to use them as a case study. But this is another thing that I do is I write, direct, uh, present documentary kind of stuff as well. Um, I did a TV series a few years ago and I'm wanting to do, I'm wanting to see if I can turn the book into a TV series as well. Um, I'd be interested in doing that in the States as well as in the UK. So, you know, it might be that I actually speak to some American broadcasters about that. Um, so, yeah, so film's another big thing. Um, do you know the week after my book comes out so it's next Thursday my book comes out the following Thursday two books come out in two of my books come out in Macedonian so I'm traveling to Macedonia (laughs) um, for these two books to be published and then two weeks after that a book that um, I'm one of the organizers of and that I wrote a chapter for is coming out in December beginning of December so in the space of one month I've got three books that I've completely written plus one I've contributed to wow. being published so I've always got stuff going on <laughs> creativity begets creativity there that's the uh, wow. well it's actually to me it's not necessarily creativity but it's creating yeah. you know and I, I think that's what a lot of people forget that is, is creating that, that when we make things and whether that is a meal or whether it's a book or whatever scale it is of whatever we're making, that is an important thing because that is something within us as humans that when we are productive, it feeds our soul. It makes us feel good. And I, I think it leads to a happier life when you're making stuff. And I feel sorry for people who are just doing their jobs and then picking up ready meals to, uh, to put in the microwave. Um, at night because I just think what are they actually doing that's feeding their soul (laughs) (laughs) that's 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 a perfect perfect point to end on well again Dave thank you so much and uh, I look forward to you know contacting in the future and you know and trying to work some other stuff out here because I think this is a great a great opportunity not just you know for you know for me professionally but also for the kids as well to know that there's that that ability just to reach out and have somebody get back to you, which has been fantastic. So thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm, I'm really loving this. So let's, let's keep in touch. And it's been, it's been great to almost meet you, Nicole. Uh, yes, <laughs> it was great to almost meet you. I would like to give a big thanks to Dave Burst for taking the time to talk to us today. And if you enjoyed Dave, please check out his book, How to Get to Great Ideas. Once again, I'm Matt Gosnell. And remember, if you have a passion, make it your project.